acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land throughout Australia on which we are recording. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to the Doyen Interviews, the podcast that speaks to inspiring women from the art, architecture and design world. I'm Bridget Nathan and I'm glad you've tuned in. Thank you also to Anon for the beautiful introductory music. In this next episode, we chat to Tanya Davich, who's a Victorian architect who's had quite a lot of experience advocating for public space. So, welcome, Tanya. I saw that you got um, shortlisted for the Bates Smart Architecture Media Award. I think you would have posted that. We did indeed. Um, yeah, congratulations. That's cool. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's nice. I've actually won it before, so. Um, ah, cool. It'll be, it'll be nice. To, it'll be nice to win it again in a in a different guise. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um oh well fingers crossed um yeah because I thought when I saw your post I thought um I haven't read that book so did you author or you've got an article in a book and that's what the prize is for no is that related so the bait, to the fed square or it's totally different no no it's totally related to the fed square the the Bates right. Smart, um award for architecture in the media uh doesn't have to be a book um from my understanding or my my memory of it when we won it about 10 years ago um it's about uh kind of engaging with the media presenting architecture in the media so it can be a book or it can be or whatever and in fact um my colleague and I Christine Phillips uh she she and I put on an exhibition um I think it was in 2009 called ads for architecture and we put it on in Fed Square and it was in Ah. the atrium and we asked people to design posters. It was right when the GFC hit. So we right. asked people to design posters to um, that talked about kind of creating a desire for architecture, like why is architecture important? Why should we design, um, you know, why should we design our cities? And it was a little bit drawing on Bernard Schumi's ads for architecture that he did in the 70s around a similar oh, kind cool. of global crisis, the, I think it was the fuel crisis way back when. Oh. And anyway, we popped this exhibition on these posters up um, and made a lovely little catalogue for it. We I think we got um, about 30 or 40 posters and it was on during grand final week. Uh, so it was on in, oh. at Fed Square in the atrium. And we ended up winning the Bates Smart Award um, the following year for that exhibition. So we won it um, oh, cool. for an exhibition. Yeah. And I still oh. work with Christine. That was our first, that was the first exhibition we did. Um, yeah. And our practice is called Hoopla now. It used to be called oh. Open House, but we got kept getting confused with Melbourne Open House. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we call ourselves Hoopla because it, it worked. Um, yeah, and anyway, so the what we have applied for um, in terms of the Bates Mart this year is um, I've, I applied for on behalf of the Citizens for Melbourne, of whom I'm the president. So the Citizens for Melbourne is a public space advocacy group and we basically ran the Our City Our Square campaign um, to stop the Yarra building being demolished and being replaced with an Apple store. And so um, we did a whole swathe of things um, around that campaign and so I got uh, our submission together for the Bates Smart Award and put that in so it's really nice to be shortlisted for that. Yeah. It would be great to hear a bit more about your career and um, what you're interested in in architecture and the built environment. Are you um, an architect? 
Yes, I'm a registered architect, um, yeah. but I haven't practised in a traditional manner for a while. Um, yeah. So my career path is definitely not, uh, has not been linear. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've always been interested in the kind of, um, the, the things on the edges of architecture, I suppose. Uh, and I, I mean, I worked in traditional practice for quite a while, um, but when I had yeah. kids, I kind of decided that um, I didn't really, traditional practice probably wasn't doing it for me. I was kind of sick of complaining that architects weren't being paid enough and, um, yeah. you know, all the, all the usual complaints that we make as architects. And I thought, well, what can we, what can we do about it? Maybe it has something to do with talking to the public, like public audiences about architecture. Right. Um, and so that's essentially what I'm running a PhD in. Um, ah, I run a, cool. a small alternative research practice with a friend of mine, Christine Phillips, who right. is a lecturer at RMIT. And yeah. we're really interested in um, talking about architecture and the built environment to public audiences. And typically we do that. We organise exhibitions, as I mentioned before, we um, we organised talk series. We did talk series one year in a lawn bowls club, which was quite oh. lawn bowl, in, in multiple lawn, lawn bowls clubs, actually, which was quite interesting. Um, awesome. <laughs> we're kind of minor activists uh, and um, we also kind of, we're interested in how spatial installation in the public realm can actually catalyse conversations uh, around the city and issues that affect the city. So, for example, um, with that, last year we were the kind of key commissioned um, practice for Melbourne Open House weekend and right. we installed um, we, we for a project called Urban Tactility and basically we installed 3,500 uh, custom-made tactile indicators, larger-than-life tactile indicators and in, in colours that we loved, um, <laughs> in the courtyard of the Immigration Museum. And basically oh, okay. what happened was that uh, the tactile indicators took you on a journey around the courtyard and we probably led, over the course of the open house weekend, we led about, I reckon, 500. We led over 500 people blindfolded with the help of volunteers, oh, of course, wow. uh, through the installation. And we talked to them about um, how it might be to see the city from somebody else's perspective. Um, and in terms of this, I suppose, you know, somebody who, who has low vision, living with low vision or blindness. So we partnered with Vision Australia. We partnered with Open House Melbourne and the Immigration Museum and we also um, ran a series of, they ran a series of conversations um, that talked about the wow. rights of the city, the sensory city, uh, mm -hmm. these kind of things. Um, and so we kind of created this conversation about, about I think, a really important issue in the city. Like how do we make our city welcoming? Um, what, what is the city like from somebody else's perspective? And how do we have empathy yeah. um, for that other yeah. perspective? Um, so wow. I suppose that's the kind so that's of research practice. And then I, um, I'm also, I suppose, a, an advocate for public space, getting up on my high horse about the Apple Store in, in Fed Square. And that's, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of another thing I do. And mostly that, that's okay at the moment. <laughs> We're trying to, yeah. um, you know, the government's reviewing Fed Square, but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens there. I think it hopefully it'll be relatively positive. Yeah. Well, so what's the current status of that? Um, the the government is looking into 
um, like the general plans for Fed Square, or it's, is it still up in the air if it will go ahead? I haven't really been following it. Hmm. Um, so basically, yeah. um, well, basically, what happened was, um, and we were part of this campaign. Fed Square was heritage listed, uh, right. I think last year, early last year, yeah. um, and. Apple didn't want to be in the Yarra building as is, as you, if you can imagine the Yarra building and the kind of architecture of Fed Square and then Apple's yep. kind of signature buildings, they're very different things and Apple's very conscious of its branding. So Apple um, Apple pulled out after Fed Square was heritage listed, the whole site was right. heritage listed. Um, and the right. government announced, basically the government announced a review of Federation Square because I think it was quite obvious that the Apple store was um, – it wasn't a solution to the problem. It was kind of part of part of the problem. Fed Square's run on a uh, a model where it's meant to kind of pay its own way, essentially, even right. though it's a public space. And so I think um, years of that kind of thinking had built up to the point where they thought it might have been a good idea to put an Apple store there. Um, and right. luckily that didn't go ahead because um, public space is really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um was the it becoming heritage listed anything to do with the Apple Store, or that was a completely different issue? It just got heritage listed. Um, like, <laughs> was that something that was like in the in the pipeline for a while? Um, no, it wasn't in the pipeline for a while. I think the Apple okay. Store there exacerbated the situation, although yeah, um, may have kind of amplified it a little bit or kind of um, hurried it along. I mean, <laughs> according to yeah. according to the um, the last time I talked to the architects, Lovell Chen are doing the conservation right. management plan for Fed Square, yeah. which is required once something becomes heritage listed. Um, right. And uh, I spoke to somebody there a couple of months back, and they thought at the time that it was one of the youngest heritage listed buildings in uh, sites. Sorry, because it's a set of buildings, one of the youngest right. heritage listed sites in the world. Um, right. I think if having been through that process and having put in a very weighty and lengthy submission on behalf of our um, our association and also kind yep. of participating in the heritage hearings, sitting through all that, listening to people present on the kind of um, the qualities of the square and now having a better understanding around what criteria um, the square falls under, it absolutely uh, deserves to be heritage listed. Right. Yeah. Mm. What were some of the qualities that um, that made it onto that register? So I think it, I think it ended up being listed under six criteria. Um, don't right. really quote me on that. I'd have to look it up again. But <laughs> you know, one of those qualities, for example, is its aesthetic criteria so that's the architecture's oh, okay. architectural quality and without a doubt um you know it's a fantastic example i suppose of of deconstructivist architecture to call it um you know if you want to pop a style umbrella over it um yeah. what was really interesting in terms of its architectural qualities i suppose is that um when people were designing architecture that looked a bit like that uh there was not much being built around the world right. because you know, the world was in recession, economic recession. And so yeah. it's, you know, an amazingly intact and large example of, of that type of architecture. Um, it was listed for its technological 
advancements, so the use of the very early use of um, CAD modeling, and also oh, for right. the passive labyrinth. It's got passive uh, heating, I think, or cool. No, cooling. Okay. Passive. The labyrinth is cooling underneath it, so it it um, sucks right. air in from the river on the south side and pushes it through um, the spaces uh, in the summer. Pushes cool air through the spaces in the summer. Um, yeah. It was listed as an as important to the kind of history and the pattern of uh, Melbourne's development as a city, and there's a really kind of long um, history of Melbourne's search for public space, which kind of culminates uh, in the building of Fed Square, the construction of Fed Square. Um, right. It was listed, and this was kind of really key. Uh, these, I think, last two are really key for me. It was listed for its social significance. Um, social and oh, cultural right. significance for the people of Melbourne. So amazing things have happened in the square. We've had protests there. People watched the sorry. Um, Kevin Rudd's apology to, apology to the stolen generations there. Um, you know, we have there's huge yeah. multicultural festivals there. Um, the Tandarum has been a fixture there for quite a few years now, um, which is a beautiful uh, Indigenous welcome to country um, ceremony, yeah. which opens the Melbourne Festival every year. I don't know if you've seen it, but if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. It's amazing. Um, and then uh, it was listed as a notable example, basically, a notable example of a public space. Um, yeah. So it's quite, you know, and it's, it's quite interesting because in terms of a contemporary public space, it, it really functions um, quite well. I mean, there's definitely some things that could be better, um, but in a lot yeah. of respects, you know, it's a fantastic public space in terms of a kind of a celebratory public space for the community. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think it would have been such a shame to, um, yeah, start changing that. It's so valuable in our city and so many people use it and, like, you only have to go there. I think I don't remember what sporting event it was on but I went there and watched the soccer or something and I'm not even into sport and it was so (laughs) nice like (laughs) having the atmosphere like and I really thought because I yeah I used to work near there and I used to walk past there all the time but like at that time like it was night time and I thought oh this is so cool that we actually Mm. have this like in our city um and all Mm -hmm. these people can be here and like it feels pretty safe because it's so like um like it's quite a large area. Um, yeah, you can get like a little group. Yeah, like groups of people. Um, so thinking, you know, about all that kind of stuff. How are you? Um, what are you thinking about at the moment with the current pandemic? And um, I guess, yeah, there's like a lot of speculation that could happen on um, on the future. Like as we hopefully. Um, go back to a new type of normal um but in yeah thinking Mm -hmm. I mean public spaces have been um drastically changed um and yeah like what are your thoughts around that yeah it's really interesting isn't it I mean it was quite interesting initially when you know we were closing the beaches and the botanic gardens because we were worried about people getting too close um yeah in public space um but I think that what we've all realised is that's actually about behaviour. It's not about the public space. So it's not about the physical right. location. It's about how we behave in that physical yeah. location and just being a little bit careful. And it seems to me that Australia's kind of dodged. Um, we've done. We seem to have done quite well in lots yeah. of respects. So um, I think we're quite we're quite lucky. And we're seeing you know the botanic gardens open up again and things like that. 
Um, yeah. But I think what it's shown is that public space has never been more important. Um, yeah. You know, we need to get out of the house. You need to get out of the house and just go yeah. for a walk and clear your head and um, it's actually really wonderful to see how many people are out and about every day, um, people that wouldn't normally get out out and about. It's just great. And I've been finding that I've been um, discovering my neighbourhood a little bit. Um, yeah. I, I live down in Elwood, so typically when I go oh, cool. for a walk, I'd, I'd go for a walk along the beach, but it was a bit, it's been a bit crowded down there. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in terms of physical distancing and stuff. So we've taken to doing walks. I've taken to doing walks with my family kind of early evening-ish and letting the kids direct us wherever they want to go and um, wandering oh, nice. down side streets that we wouldn't normally wander down um, and all of those kind of things. So it's been a really wonderful way to discover my neighbourhood. I've also discovered Elstonwick. Um, the old Elstonwick golf course was closed last year by the city of Port Phillip. Right. Um, they oh. haven't really done anything with it yet except for open it up and it's a bit rough around the edges. But it's yep. actually a fantastic place just to go. Um, like they've kind of mown paths into it because there's no real paths in it yet. So they've mown bits and pieces out of it. And then there's a little bit of a hill where kids have made um, mountain bike uh, and BMX bike jumps and stuff, and um, oh, it's cool. quite big. It's double the size of Elstonwick Park, so it's um, it's yeah. quite cool. It's been fun to discover that. So I think what what yeah. the pandemic has shown us is that we really, oh well, just public space is really, really super important, um, and it's going to be just as important coming out of this moment that we find ourselves in because, you know, as we know, our cities are getting denser. Yeah. And, um, you know, those the, those kind of spaces are kind of, you know, the lungs of our cities. Yeah. Um, have you, in your research, um, looked into different city spaces at all, like in different countries that, like, do you think um, Melbourne's, like what makes Melbourne's city public space different to, to places like other places? Mm-hmm. Well, I lived in America for a really long time, so um, right. a fairly long time. Yeah, so I studied there at Columbia University. I lived in San Francisco. I lived in or near New York in New Jersey. Um, right. All up for about six or seven years. And oh, wow. Yeah, and so what you see, I suppose, I think in Australia we're really lucky. We have a certain public space um, is contextual. Like how we define it has to do with, you know, a whole lot of different things. It's how we, you know, how we govern it, how we value it, um, you know, where it's negotiated in terms of being public and private and, and those kind of things. So you can see those kind of issues that came out with the Apple Store and Fed Square. But Australia yeah. has this real, um, I think we have a kind of a deep ingrained love of public space, whether we, whether we know it or not. Like if you think about right. the beat, and the access that we have to the beach and how we take that for granted and how we take it for granted that the beach is ours, like collectively ours. Like we hold, you know, yeah. we hold that kind of coastline in common and it's ours. And when I lived in the US, you know, you can own a stretch of beach. And that, right. that's kind of horrifying, <laughs> you know, in some ways that's, yeah. really, that's awful 
you know. Yeah. Um, it's like those kind of things shouldn't be private. We should actually hold them in common. Um, and you can kind of see that a little bit in their public spaces. Their pub, you know, American public spaces have a much more commercial feel to them. If you think, like a lot of people talk about Times Square, for example, um, right? You know, as as a public space, but it's really kind of a spectacle. It's not for doing the kind right. of, you know, it's not about. Um, it doesn't do the same things as Fed Square, you know. Yeah, it's a very very different conception of public space. So you start to realise that, um, and I think this is one of the reasons that I got involved with the Fed Square thing, is you start to realise that the meaning of public space, what it means to the community, what it means to society, is actually negotiated. And you have to take part in that conversation if you want um, if you want certain outcomes. And maybe, right. you know, we, we'd always kind of been prepared to fail, I think, in some respects, that we were hoping that yeah. we wouldn't. Um, but we thought at least we've kind of raised the level of conversation around, right. you know, why space is important, um, why public space is important to a city, why public space is not only our parks and our gardens but our beaches and our urban public spaces as well um, and what right. those spaces mean. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. It's I guess it's thinking about public space and the trying to protect things um, that aren't just a commodity or aren't just, um, you know, consumerist public spaces, but um, true public spaces, you know, spaces yeah. where, yeah, spaces where you can go and be um, that you don't have to pay for, um, you know, in that in that moment um, Absolutely. are so valuable. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's, and, and these, I think it's really interesting because I suppose at a more academic level, public spaces like that so like libraries and you know the national gallery for example and 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 those kind of institutions you know public space should be seen as part of that network definitely and I think they're they're really important democratically because they're spaces that we can all access without necessarily paying for them it doesn't matter what your you know what the color of your skin is it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status um you know these spaces anybody can access or should be able to access. So I think a big part of, of what makes a public space is, you know, access to it and equality. Um, and, you know, the question is, is then if you put a commercial entity on the edge of that, a big commercial en entity on the edge of that public space, who does that include? Who does that exclude? Um, for me, public spaces, you know, they should be spaces that feel safe, as you mentioned before. Um, they should be spaces that are inviting um, but they should also be spaces that are designed to allow people to spend time and to gather there, and they should be spaces that are inclusionary. So they shouldn't yeah. be actually, you know, exclusionary. I think they necessarily do that on their own. Um, yeah. Like what's really, I mean, you know, like a, a park has a very different um, has a very different agenda, I suppose, as a public space to Fed Square. But Fed Square yeah. is a really important public space because it's programmed. And so um, it's important, I think, to have sp public spaces in the city that are programmed for the community. So not like events right. that you pay to go, you know, you pay to go to, but that are programmed for the community. And I think um, I think if we really think about these kind of spaces cleverly, you know, they have they have the ability to kind of connect us socially. 
we have the ability to meet people in them that we, you know, haven't met before or, you know, like experience different people's cultures and stuff like that, which is what happens a lot at Fed Square. Um, and I think, I think this idea of connectivity is really important because it goes to a sense of belonging. Like, you know, is the yeah. city welcoming? Do we belong here? Are we welcome here? Um, and it also there's a lot of conversations about loneliness, you know, in yeah. an increasingly kind of secular society where we don't have um, structures in place that automatically connect us. How can right. we program spaces that connect people um, and, you know, mitigate this idea of loneliness that we're seeing become an issue in big, dense cities? Yeah. Um, like what do you think are some of the things that help mitigate that in public spaces? Mm. Well, I mean, I think, you know, in a lot of respects, public spaces um, need to provide or, you know, can provide, I suppose, a sense of respite. Like, you know, you go to a garden and it's just nice to walk around and we know that um, spending time in nature, even if it's in an urban setting, uh, you know, mitigates, basically lifts, our, it lifts your spirits, it helps you kind of focus, it refreshes your attention um, and those kind of things. So it's wonderful to have our parks. And then um, public spaces, yeah. public institutions such as libraries and, you know, the National Gallery of Victoria, things like that, public art galleries, um, were always seen as kind of the cultural side, the cultural side of that. Right. And I'd like to think that our you know, our more urban programmed outdoor spaces like Fed Square are kind of extensions of the library um, and the art gallery. I think I wrote, I mean, one of the reasons I actually got involved in the Fed Square thing is because I had written an article about Fed Square East. So to the east of Fed Square, there's potential to deck the rail yards and create a whole right. other site attached to Fed Square, essentially. Um, and right. I think... Uh, the Liberal government had put out an expression of interest um, for kind of proposals. Any proposal you wanted, it, you did. You know, there weren't, wasn't really any limits on it um, to see what kind of interest there was in Fed Square, uh, in Fed Square East. Yeah. And I'd written an article for Architecture Australia talking about Fed Square's charter and why the charter was important and why it was important to keep Fed Square East, um, or at least its public spaces, uh, kind of you know, within, within the purvey of government, I suppose, as the custodians right. of that space. Um, yeah. And, and I talked about Fed, Federation Square being run under the Charter and the public events that happened at the Fed Square um, as basically curating public space like the NGV curates an exhibition. So this idea that right. um, Fed is an extension of that public space spaces network and it's an important... Um, it forms a, an important part in that in ecology, essentially. I mean, most people, I would say, like have access, like when you go to Fed Square, for example, you see people sitting there on their phones. So like the experience of being in a public space is probably like not dissimilar to being in a library um, in some ways if you're, if you're doing, you know, similar activities there that you could be doing in a library in terms of reading stuff or um, maybe how many people mm. study outside but um yeah yeah absolutely and then you know and then fed square kind of arcs up at certain times of the year or certain days of the month to kind of um you know create different kinds of programming that 
only it can, essentially. Yeah. I mean, there are things that, yeah, occur in Fed Square that really couldn't happen in any other space in Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and so what are you working on at the moment? You mentioned that you're doing um, the PhD. So basically I'm trying to finish up my PhD, um, yeah. <laughs> which is basically related to using, I suppose, architectural uh knowledge to talk to public audiences about the city and the issues that are facing the city um, yeah. and also to kind of think about how through kind of this public interaction or public participation we can actually build you know like a public voice in the city so what was really and the, the fed square issue i think is forming the last kind of part of is part of the last chapter of the case study but what was really interesting i think about um our campaign for Fed Square was that it was, you know, this pu the public space issue is really nuanced, you know. A lot of people either didn't really care that an Apple store was going there um, or cared quite passionately. <laughs> it was quite yeah. interesting. But then to kind of talk to people about the issue, to actually make them care, took this kind of prolonged, um, drawn-out, conversation it felt like a really drawn out conversation um but what we what we did or what we managed to do is kind of build a public voice around that you know and actually then show government um over a series of actions we you know, we took part in the debate the fed square debate which happened early on um we presented uh, submissions to the city of melbourne who were also aghast that the government wanted to put an apple store there um, yeah. We, you know, we wrote letters to politicians. Uh, we held a rally, um, and it kind of culminated in this point where we started off with a lot of people not knowing who we were or what we were doing or why we were doing it. Um, yeah. And then what happened was once Fed Square was um, accepted, or once the recommendation for its heritage listing has was accepted, what happens is is they, that Heritage Council holds heritage hearings around the issue. Right. And this might take, you know, the whole process takes some months. Uh, and while this process is going on, what happens then is that the site has um, an interim heritage protection order placed over it, right. which means that to make any large changes to that site, you actually need to then apply for a heritage permit. Um now, what was really interesting is when the when the Apple Store was initially announced, the planning minister had invoked his authority and basically um, any public comment or public exhibition, um, which is usually what happens in the heritage, uh, in a planning process, sorry, um, was yeah. basically denied the public to the public. But what oh. happened was when, yeah, so when the heritage process then happened, Fed Square had to apply for... Um, a permit to demolish the building and we had kind of built um, a public voice by that time because it took about a year and a half and we managed to help facilitate about 2,300 submissions to Heritage Victoria objecting oh, wow. to the permit. Um, and this was yeah. probably the key thing, I think. It wasn't actually the heritage listing um, that, that ended up kind of stopping the situation. Basically... Right. Um, we facilitated about 2,300 submissions. All in all, there was over 3,000 
submissions to Heritage Victoria objecting to the permit. I think it's the yeah. most they've ever had. Um, wow. <laughs> and and Heritage Victoria then said, then rejected, basically rejected the permit off the back of that. Um, so what yeah. was really interesting is to kind of start to think about how architectural expertise, you know, understanding kind of these milestones in the process could actually help us build a voice and build, um, you know, kind of build a kind of a cohort of people who are really, really passionate about the issue and then actually give them ways to have their say on the issue uh, in, in ways that eventually ended up affecting the outcome. Um, and I think, you know, reflecting on that, it's an incredibly powerful thing to do. I mean, what we do as architects is we, you know, we change the form of the city, essentially. Yeah. And we understand how the city changes and we can use that to help people, um, you know, to kind of talk about issues. We can use that to help people understand um, that the city doesn't have to be the way it is. It's like it is for a certain yeah. reason. And if we speak up at certain points in time um, around important issues, we can make change. Yeah. Oh, that's, um, yeah, like amazing points. Um, and like congratulations on doing that and getting getting like like synthesizing all that information and like that's like pretty amazing um and yeah like um I did read some stuff about it online but it also sounds like um there are maybe like a lot of things that happen behind the scenes on a, um, a process like that um so yeah it's really yeah, I wouldn't. Oh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend activism to anybody unless um, you know they have a lot of time on their hands. Was <laughs> 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 another thing my PhD went on hold for, like the pandemic. <laughs> for a while. Um, I didn't quite realise what I was getting into when I <laughs> started. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I think it's a, yeah, like you do something and you probably want to. Do you feel like you? you want to follow through with with things as well and maybe it's hard to is it hard to like anticipate what might be involved to actually make change happen yeah it, I mean it is and I don't think everybody has to kind of take it to the extent that that we that we took it to but I think I think it's really interesting what we're seeing kind of in broader society is we're you know we're asking companies like you know are you being good global citizens you know we're thinking about um the environment. We're actually thinking. Oh, I'm starting to hope that we're really um, we're thinking about how we might change things or how we might have have an impact and what what we can do to have yeah. have an impact. I think um, I definitely see it in my kids. You know, they really, you know, they feel, you know, if things are unfair and they want to do something about it. I see it in the kind of um, I ran a a networking event or I helped just it was a, a lunch thing at the parlor transform conference last year and it was really oh yeah interesting because it seemed to me that there are a lot of people around the table who just wanted to know how they could have an impact um yeah you know and I think really it doesn't have to you know you don't have to run a campaign to save a, you know to save the Yarra building um, it's about kind yeah. of thinking thinking a little bit about, I suppose, what your values are. And even if, you know, you just make small steps, like all of these little things, when they start to 
coalesce and come together, um, all of these little things make a difference. So, you know, I, I would have people emailing me saying, oh, I'm so sorry, I've only written a letter to my, but I've written a letter to my um, to my MP and I've written a letter to Daniel Andrews and I don't feel like it's very much, but I just wanted to let you know I did it. And um, I thought, I th- you know, like I valued every single little moment like that because I knew that every single little moment like that added up, you know. So it adds, it does add up to something bigger you don't have to um not I mean I I suppose I didn't really set out thinking that you know we were going to make a big difference or anything or whatever but I I set out just going okay small steps like what are what are the small steps and I think if you kind of you know you have something that you're passionate about and you can make small actions in relation to that I think um you know when you find the other people who are interested in doing that too and who think like you do, you know, you, it, it starts to coalesce into something bigger. You can amplify people's voices by um, bringing them together. Mm. Wow. That's, yeah, that's a really, um, like, strong way to think and I think, yeah, really valuable for people to hear that. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like you don't know where to start with things, yeah. um, but... Yeah, like I totally agree. It's like um, I, the one thing I've learned through this podcast is that you sort of um, like you do one thing and then it will lead to another thing. Um, yeah. And it's like, yeah, those like incremental um, changes or moves that kind of get you to somewhere that's a bigger picture that you might not have been able to like foresee. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, like um, – yeah, like I think um, probably a lot of people I know, including myself, like, um, yeah, definitely feel like daunted by um, political decisions or, mm. um, yeah, like issues like that in the city. Like I read that that was happening and, mm. of course, I like well, my opinion is was that, it, you know, I didn't want it there and um, I was working in an office at the time where it was um, – quite conservative and a lot of the guys were like we don't care they were architects they're like we don't care if it's a fed square and I, if it's a um if there's an apple store there and I was like oh god <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I didn't do anything about it I I didn't I was just like I don't want that to happen and I feel like that way mm. about a lot of issues um so it's really good to hear you say that because it kind of plants like seeds in my mind that maybe it's yeah like little things that you do yeah I think we have to value the little things I think we have to value the small steps and I think you know like I think I think yeah and because little actions I think help us feel like we're doing something as well like it's very easy to just get daunted by it all and just want to put your head under the sheets or under the doona you know I think Scott Morrison that the other day um no, and, and just because it's it seems too hard, but it's not, um, you know, most things don't happen quickly. Like the big wins, the big wins kind of don't, you know, like they don't, it's it's not immediate. It's not this big kind of life-changing thing. It's, it's like these really small little in- incremental steps. And as long as you kind of are kind of clear about what you're interested in and what you're passionate about and what you care about, um, you can't do everything. You really can't do everything, yeah. but um, 
you know, just making the little steps and supporting supporting the people that you care about and the people that whose values align with yours and that you think are important. Just, you know, just little moments of support um, often means the world and you don't realise it, um, but it does. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. Oh, well, the hour has gone, like, really quickly. Yeah, it was really good information. Um, and, yeah, so thank you. And uh, I hope everything goes well with your PhD when it gets back up and running again. Hopefully I'll be finished by the end of the year <laughs> and I'll have a nice, strong <laughs> conclusion. It's always good to end on a win. So, so luckily <laughs> I think I'll have a nice, strong conclusion. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure it'll be amazing. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Tanya. That was such an interesting conversation for me to hear and I really enjoyed listening to it whilst I was editing it. Um, next up, we'll be chatting to Fiona Dunnan from FMD Architects in Melbourne who talks a lot about her experiences with space, um, so both from an interiors and an architectural point of view and the idea of responding to a sense of place when starting on a building project. So I hope you can join us then. Um, you know, so they were really teaching us, you know, to sit down and draw and, and not, not draw as in, you know, draw the site, but draw things that you see in the place, you know. And, that, and so it was really interesting. It was a completely different way of thinking. And um, we spent days doing that.